and invite you to turn with me in your copies of God's Word to uh, 1 Kings chapter 8. We'll be reading verses 12 through 21. Children who have the coloring page, you'll notice that uh, Solomon's facing the, the pillar, the glory of uh, the Lord on that coloring page, which is what the first verse of this talks about before, in verse 14, he turns around and faces everyone else. So this is a coloring page that fits this uh, text very well. 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 12 through 21, the word of our God. Then Solomon spoke, The Lord said he would dwell in the cloud, dark cloud. I have surely built you an exalted house and a place for you to dwell in forever. Then the king turned around and blessed the whole assembly of Israel while all the assembly of Israel was standing. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, who spoke with his mouth to my father David, and with his hand has fulfilled it, saying, Since the day that I brought my people Israel out of Egypt, I have chosen no city from any tribe of Israel in which to build a house, that my name might be there. But I chose David to be over my people Israel. Now it was in the heart of my father David to build a temple for the name of the Lord God of Israel. But the Lord said to my father David, Whereas it was in your heart to build a temple for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, you shall not build the temple, but your son who comes from your body, he shall build the temple for my name. So the Lord has fulfilled his word which he spoke. And I have filled the position of my father David and sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised. And I have built a temple for the name of the Lord God of Israel. And there I have made a place for the ark in which is the covenant of the Lord, which he made with our fathers when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. So far in the word of our God. Let's pray. Father, we... Thank you for this, your word, this history you have given us. Lord, we ask that as we gaze at these verses tonight, you would uh, guide our hearts and our minds to a place of knowing your blessing. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the temple dedication ceremony finally begins in our passage It begins with Solomon facing the people and blessing them. And it begins with him recounting 2 Samuel chapter 7 again, which makes this the eighth chapter and far more than just once in each chapter, uh, where in 1 Kings that same chapter of 2 Samuel is brought to our attention. What more could we possibly say about 2 Samuel 7? That was my thought on uh, on Tuesday morning at 3 a.m. And uh, I wondered, do, you, do we read just a long portion and get past this one? Um, but then it struck me that there is something very instructive 
in two of the verses here. Because if we notice in verses 14 and 15, something very interesting, interesting to me. And Peter will probably like it. It may not be interesting to the rest of you. But in verse 14, we read from Solomon that Solomon blessed the whole assembly of Israel, verse 15, and he said. And the way that's constructed would indicate that the things he is saying is how he is blessing the people. Which would suggest that the people are blessed by history being recounted to them. I, I, I think that's an important note and worth pausing on for a moment uh, this evening as we continue in this book. Because, uh, of course, again, the Holy Spirit has drawn us to that same promise over and over. And we don't want to just rehash that Uh, Davidic promise over and over, except that the Holy Spirit does it. And so if we understand that the Holy Spirit is blessing the people through that thought, if this was a two-minute sermon, which it won't be, but if it was only a two-minute sermon, what, what we would conclude then here as we ended, which we won't be ending, but it would simply be to point out that whenever we find God fulfilling his promises, God's people are blessed. That, that's one simple point you can draw from these verses. God, Solomon says, fulfilled these promises that he made way back then, and therefore God's people are blessed by that. And that's true, and it's an important point for us to consider. But I want us to also just consider the concept there that Solomon blesses the people through history. And this is not the first time in the Old Testament that God does this. That Deuteronomy itself, the book of Deuteronomy, begins with God recounting the history of his dealings with his people. This is a very abridged version of the first quarter of Deuteronomy that Solomon gives us right here when he recounts God bringing the people out of Egypt in just one verse. He summarizes it. But there in Deuteronomy, Moses is bringing uh, the history, the remembrance of history to the people, and they are presumably blessed by it. And therefore, if, um, if we would know the assurance of God's blessing upon ourselves, uh, I, I think we need to conclude that we need to pay attention to history. Let me let me argue it with this thought. I was reflecting on scripture as a whole and asking does scripture as a whole tell us that blessing comes through history and I I just looked at the table of contents. And and I wrote down how many I thought were history and apparently I didn't copy that into my sermon notes. But um I think it worked out pretty much one-third of the books are historical books. Out of 66, I think I came up with, uh, and different people would have different opinions on these things, but uh, that it came out to something around 23 out of 66 books are predominantly history. Well, God gives his word in part to bless his people as, as well as instruct us. And if he gives one-third of it, 23 books. Now, there's different things you find in those books. Uh, The books of Moses are predominantly history, but they're also law. 
Uh, the book of Job is poetry, but it's a historic account in poetry. But 23 out of 66 I came up with, in addition to which, nine or ten of the, the prophets have significant historic setting that uh, takes up a, a big portion of their prophetic book. Think of Jeremiah and Ezekiel are almost as much history, Daniel, as it is prophecy. So you could add those books in potentially and come up with a higher percentage. And then you have the Psalms where they recount history over and over in various Psalms. And then if you include personal history in this, you can include a a number of passages in the New Testament where Paul recounts history. So God very much wants us to be a people of history It's one of the ways that he blesses us. Uh, He wants us to be aware of history, I think, in three areas as we look at scripture. There's the general history of God's people. And uh, we're commanded to pay attention to the general history of what God has done for his people. Deuteronomy 32, verse 7. Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your fathers your father, and he will show you your elders, and they will tell you. There's a command from God. Be a people of history. Consider these things. Investigate them. uh, Do the work. Ask the questions. You need to know these things. Uh, And Psalm 77, 11 through 12, is another example of this, where the psalmist says, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. That that suggests uh, history beyond the psalmist's own days, right? Of old, uh, long ago. And that's why we find a number of psalms uh, where it takes us all the way back to creation. Uh, but, but more on that in a little bit, maybe. Uh, but uh, not only does God want us generally to remember his dealings with his people, specifically, he wants us to remember when covenant promises are made and fulfilled. And 1 Kings 1 through 8 is a clear example of that, isn't it? There are a lot of promises God has made, and many of them fulfilled in Solomon's day. But this one, the Davidic covenant, is emphasized over and over. There's a special blessing that we receive as God's people, as we are a people who dwell on the covenant promises. And... uh, as we think about the New Testament, that all the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus Christ, then we'd better be aware of what those promises were in the first place. It requires history for us to really get the the blessing out of that thought of Christ who is the fulfillment. And then I think a third area of history we can consider, and that, that is in Scripture, remember your own personal history. And as a historian, I cringe a little bit at that because history history doesn't come up to yesterday. History comes up to a couple generations ago if you're technically in the field of history. Uh, history, for example, a U.S. history class would typically take you up through, at this point probably, the 90s. Because anything closer to that, you're too close to really do objective history. But we won't use that technical language here. And we'll consider that in Scripture, uh, Paul, for example, gives his own personal account. And it is for 
his blessing. Solomon here is telling a very intimate, personal story about his own family, and God is blessing him through it. And all of Israel is being blessed by personal history right here at this spot. Because remember what we noted last week. Even though what Solomon says here is about his family history, we noted last week that this takes place at the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths. And at the Feast of Booths, all of you were to remember that God had given land and housing to your parents before you that has now been passed down to you. The fact that you live in Canaan, you eat uh, from vines that you didn't plant, someone planted them many generations ago, and you live in a house that you didn't build, or maybe you've built by the time 500 years later comes around. But the, the idea is that with the Feast of Booths, you're remembering that God has, has personally blessed your family and you personally. And so you're remembering your own personal history. Well, if we are to uh, consider history from Scripture, and particularly here, Solomon blesses the people by recounting history, we, we should come to the question... How is it that history is a blessing? And maybe some of you who are in school especially don't think of history as a blessing. And so how is it that God blesses through history? And uh, I guess I'll give three this evening, but I don't want to dwell on the first. Because the first is that, that, old, that old bromide. Those who fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it, right? We all hear that. You hear your boring history. Te- Hopefully you don't have any boring history teachers because boring, because uh, history is awesome and, and there's nothing boring about it. But, but, you know, if you have an unfortunate history professor, that's the first thing they tell you when you take their class. And, and, uh, but it's true, isn't it? If you look at the church in our day and all the heresies that the early church uh, uh, put in creeds were were heresies and yet people today are spouting them from pulpits and unaware that uh anything's wrong with that oh well that's a clear sign that if you ignore history you do have a problem so there's a blessing in knowing your history because you can avoid as c.s lewis says uh, c.s lewis uh, said there's uh the tyranny of the present and when we study history we're exposed we're exposed to our sins by seeing people who would never have thought of justifying the things that we justify and and it can wake us up it can make us say well, wait a second why doesn't this bother me they just assume everyone understands it's wrong why doesn't it bother me that exposes and opens our eyes uh, to issues in our own lives so it, it may be an old bromide but uh, that doesn't mean it's wrong but I, I think there are two other ways that god blesses his people uh as we study history as we're faithful to consider it and uh, the first is this that history draws us to faith in the evangelical church today, we like to think that the, the uh, everything of my faith is me and my experience. 
But scripture says, no, uh, your faith is built up upon something. It's founded upon that which has happened objectively in the past. If, if no other history matters, you, you, to be a Christian, need to believe in a historic fact of something that happened 2,000 years ago. I know a lot of people claim to be Christians who reject that fact today. They're not Christians. If Christ wasn't historically a man and historically doing things, uh, then, then your faith is in vain and you're a fool. So you're not a Christian. But Christianity itself assumes that the history of what has happened matters. And the fact that over a third of Scripture is historic content suggests that it isn't only when Jesus shows up on the scene that God thinks we should care about history, that perhaps he will be developing and drawing us to faith through more than just that one three-year period of human history. Hebrews 12 makes that very clear as well, doesn't it? Having recounted in chapter 11, basically half the Old Testament, focusing on all these men and women of faith, Hebrews 12 concludes, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and run with endurance, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. In other words, look at these people and be drawn to deeper faith yourself. Soon after that, in the same letter to the Hebrews, uh, it's followed by another thought. Hebrews 13, 7 and 8. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So there in Hebrews 11, you have ancient history. In Hebrews 13, you have immediate history. People just one generation before you, maybe your Sunday school teacher, and they are to be remembered by you as someone who will now draw you with their memory to imitate their faith. History draws us to faith. And I don't think it just ends with Scripture's history of God and his people either. Uh, Philip Schaff, famous church historian, actually I realized an entire, that entire unglassed section of my bookshelf, all of those books are Philip Schaff. He, he's kind of a big deal in church history. And, uh, and in the first volume of his eight-volume church history set, he wrote the following as a defense, in part a defense for why you should read his series. That the epistle to the Hebrews, he writes, describes in stirring eloquence the cloud of witnesses from the Old Testament for the encouragement of the Christians. Why should not the greater cloud of apostles, evangelists, martyrs, confessors, church fathers, reformers, and saints of every age and tongue since the coming of Christ be held up for the same purpose? They were heroes of the Christian faith and love, the living epistles of Christ, the salt of the earth, the benefactors of, and glory of our race, and it is impossible rightly to study their thoughts and deeds, their lives and deaths, without being elevated 
edified, comforted, and encouraged to follow their holy example, that we at last, by the grace of God, be received into their fellowship and spend with them the blessed eternity in the praise and enjoyment of the same God and Savior. End quote. History draws us to faith. History draws us to faith, especially in the Bible, but in church history as well. But especially in the Bible, where the Holy Spirit presents us with very flawed individuals. I, I don't know if some of you read Christian biographies. There are, there are three types of Christian biography. There's the idolizing Christian biography. You know, you read about the, the man or the woman of faith, and they never did anything wrong. At least not in the book. And then there was a kind of a, a response to that by some Christian historians, especially in the, in the 90s and early 2000s, where we would find one little thread of possible sin or weakness or one thought in someone's journal that might lend itself towards sin, and we would make this big deal out of it. Because, of course, they weren't perfect, and, you know, they weren't any better than us. So it almost went too far the other direction. And then there's good Christian biographies, which I, I hope if you read, those are the ones I hope you read, where the sins are acknowledged and so is the faith. And that's what the Holy Spirit gives us for one third of the Bible, isn't it? Sins acknowledged. We've just looked at David in First and Second Samuel over the past several years, and he is a, he's a filthy guy. And he's a man of faith. We're looking at Solomon. We're about to get into a lot of his sins, but we've already noted one or two of them. And yet he's beloved of the Lord. Uh, in fact, uh, that's what the prophet says. He's beloved of the Lord, 2 Samuel twelve twenty-five, And therefore his other name was Jedidiah, which means beloved of the Lord. God called him that. And we say, wait a second. I, we know where this book is going. Most of us do anyway. And Solomon is a filthy sinner. But God says, yes, but he's also a man of faith after my own heart. And God, God, after some of his sins are listed in 1 Kings 3, tells us that God is pleased with his humility and his desire for wisdom. I think that's just a, a good sample from the Bible that tells us what God is doing with history. He's using the weaknesses and the failures, but also the dependence on God as a means of drawing out our faith as well, challenging us not to pride. Oh, if I was Solomon, I would never have done that. If I had all the wealth and money and fame in the world and had kings offering me their daughters as brides, I would never have more than one wife. Well, hopefully, but, but that's a little arrogant to, to devoid yourself of, of his context, especially when God says he's the wisest man on earth. <laughs> Remember what Solomon says later. I think I quoted it the other week in church. Uh, Solomon talks about those who fall into certain types of sin. He says, all of them were strong men. Now they're all corpses. We, we look at history and God would draw us to faith first by showing us humility and deepening then our gratitude to him. Uh, and, and those are two important words as we read 
history in scripture and out of scripture. Humility and gratitude. You could ask yourself as you read a Christian biography, how should this draw me to humbleness? And how should it drive me to gratitude as I learn about God and his dealings with his people? God uses history to draw us to faith. And then the third thing that God does to bless us with history is that through faith, he draws us to worship. Through history, he draws us to faith, and through that faith, he draws us to worship. Solomon starts this service by blessing the people, recounting history, but what follows? If you cheat and look ahead, one of the most enthusiastic worship services in the history of mankind. Worship follows. Psalm 9 begins with David uh, drawn to praise and gratitude by history. David says, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. Or there's Psalm 136, which some of you are familiar with, where history is recounted. The history of creation, followed by the history of redemption, salvation. But the history of creation and redemption are uh, constantly broken up in that psalm with uh, a response of the people. Give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever, over and over. You can barely get a sentence out. The part that always gets me with that is when we get into the kings who are trying to destroy Israel. Yeah, some of you, it's the same thing. I can see it on your faces. You get in there, Og, king of Bashan, for his mercy endures forever. And uh, and I, for, I, I got them out of order, so now I can't remember the first guy. But, you know, it, it's just, it. if it wasn't inspired, wouldn't we be almost thinking, it's a bit much. Can we just list all the guys that God crushed and then have the chorus line? But no, history that draws us to faith Uh, then uh, draws us to worship. And that's what Psalm 136 is forcing upon us, worship. Or Revelation chapters 4 and 5, where we are shown the eternal, sinless worship that uh, still values history. When history is no more, meaning, well, history won't be no more, but time will be no more. When we're in eternity, when we're in heaven, and no more watching the calendar to see what's coming down the pipeline next because we know what's coming next, right? Worship. But even then, history will be valued as something to spur us on to worship. And so we find there the song of heaven. Worthy are you, O our Lord and God, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. And... You were slain, and by your blood you ransomed a people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Notice that in Revelation 4 and 5, it's the same two things that are emphasized in the Psalms, creation and redemption. These two areas of history are essential, the Holy Spirit is saying, for your faith and to drive you to worship. 
Well, there are a lot of other things we could say about the benefits and, and ways that God blesses his people through history. In fact, I just uh, read a, a great little booklet uh, by Joel Beakey, and I'm trying to remember the name. It's right next to Sean. If whoever gets there first can read it this week. Uh, but it's, uh, Why Should I Be Interested in Church History? And he has some overlap with what, what I've uh, drawn us to this evening, but some other points as well. But here's, here's this main thing I want you to walk away from. Here, Solomon blesses God's people by recounting history and what God does through that. Even as we gaze at this text tonight, I hope he'll do this for you, that he'll draw you through history to faith. He hasn't changed. Remember, we recounted that together with Hebrews 7 earlier in the worship service. Jesus Christ hasn't changed. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So whatever we learn of him and and his father and God's dealings with his people in history should inform our faith and draw us to worship. Solomon, as God's representative, blesses the people using history as the tool. And note that he does so in a manner that draws the people to worship. Blessed be the Lord, he says, the God of Israel, who with his hand has fulfilled what he promised. Blessed be God. Beloved, let us listen to the command of Deuteronomy 32.7. Remember the days of old. Let's remember that. Let us obey that command so that we might join with the assembly of Israel with full-hearted adoration of our God.